This is the Design Goggles podcast on DNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Board and Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Board and Vellum. I live in the old Ballard neighborhood and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled In Good Taste. Design is a funny thing in that it exists on a wide spectrum, with great design on one end and awful design on the other. But to figure out where design ends up on it, somebody has to decide what makes a design good, bad, or some measure of both. Architects and designers don't talk about it often, but design is subjective. One designer's masterpiece is another designer's tragedy, and the construction boom in Seattle has brought a heck of a lot of both. Seattleites are pretty savvy in terms of the built environment that surrounds them, and we all have our opinions. But in the end, who decides what's good and what's bad? That's where taste comes in. What is taste to begin with? Who has good taste? Who has bad taste? How do we know what kind of taste we have and what the heck do we do with it if we know we have it? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Brian Baker, an architect here at Ord and Bellum. Brian, thank you so much for making time to sit and chat with us. Thanks for having me. So, Brian, how long have you been in Seattle? I have lived in Seattle for 15 years as of September. That's a good amount of time. That's not more than half your life. I heard that that's like the the marker. For local like, status? For, yeah, local status. Mm-hmm. There's a debate about that. I'm approaching local status at 15 years. That's a big deal, approaching local status. You're like almost a senior. <laughs> for a podcast that talks a lot about the boom, I've seen the boom before the boom and the lull in the middle. What neighborhoods have you lived in in Seattle? What neighborhood do you live in now? Capitol Hill, Capitol Hill, and Capitol Hill. Um, Different that, yeah, not That's not entirely true. When I moved here for graduate school, I lived in Wallingford for one year. And then I lived next to the original Red Robin overlooking Portage Bay for a year in a tiny little apartment that's still one of my favorite places I've ever lived. Since those two years, I've lived in Capitol Hill the entire time. Where did you grow up? Denver, Colorado. How was moving here different than... For some strange reason, I always knew I would be here, and I don't know why. I don't have a good explanation of the thing that drew me here, but I have been fascinated with Seattle since I could explain why, and I came here as a freshman in college. I flew here on a ticket that I was gifted, like a fly anywhere in the lower 48, um, and I came here alone. I stayed in a hotel downtown for three nights as an 18-year-old. And I went to the aquarium and I took the clipper up to Victoria and I went to Butchart Gardens and I just knew I would come back. So when I applied to graduate schools, I applied to the University of Colorado Denver as a backup and the University of Washington and Penn as a like shoot the moon. And the only one I actually wanted to go to was UW. So here we are. Was there a lot of adjustment? There's a lot of adjustment in going back to grad school after two years of not (laughs) being in an academic environment. I feel like there are a lot of people that equate Denver and Seattle on a lot of levels. There's a lot of similarity. There's definitely a lot of similarity. What are the similarities? There's a laid back attitude. There's natural beauty that abounds. The size of the city is similar. They're boom towns. They're similar in terms of the size and the population. The outdoorsiness, the arts. Denver is like the Pacific Northwest in the mountains without a coast. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot better Asian food of all varieties. Vietnamese food, sushi, 
you know, uh, teriyaki. We don't have any of that in Denver, but Denver has a little more Midwest to it. A little more like, whereas Seattle has that little bit of the Seattle freeze kind of edge. So like, that's the biggest, I think, difference in terms of just like meeting people. Is there a lot of eye contact more. and like chatting? Yeah, that's what I mean. More. More in Denver. More. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still not Iowa or Texas. Hell, when I go to Chicago and people like smile at me, I freak out <laughs> every time, every single time. So you mentioned earlier that you've you've kind of seen the boom, not necessarily from the start, because you could make an argument started a long time ago, but you've seen the recent boom sort of from the beginning. What's that experience been like? How has it felt? Well, I mean, I think it starts with the bottom. It starts with the valley, because when I emerged from grad school with my master's in 2005, things were hunky-dory then. Everybody in my class got hired up and everyone had great jobs for two, three, four years. And then pretty much everyone that I knew got laid off, furloughed, reduced hours. A lot of people moved. Their lives were affected in some way or another. I went to the Netherlands for a year and a half. And when I came back, I was working for two different employers. I had a buddy who was doing spec development who I started working halftime for him. And I had a friend who was working for Roy McMakin, who is kind of a formerly local artist interior designer, furniture maker. And between the two of them, I was able to make 40 hours a week until things started picking up. And when they started picking up, they really started picking up. And the spec development side of things is where I saw the biggest change, where I saw the most observable impact. From a design perspective, do you feel like the boom has been a net positive or a net negative or a wash? I think you have to say it's a net positive, if only from the perspective that people are talking about it. People care. People who otherwise didn't care before care. They may be mad, they may be angry, they may be disappointed, but they're engaged and they they have an opinion one way or the other. And I think that for design, that's a net positive. Is there a building you can think of that when you think of the positive portion, like that's the example that you might point at? I think as an architect, I love iconic buildings, right? At the end of the day, if you love the profession, you're kind of a fanboy. The library being a civic building is not emblematic of the boom, but the spheres are. And I kind of put them in the same category. And they're both, you know, special, unique, interesting examples that are one of a kind that'll be icons for the city, you know, second and third only to the Space Needle. I would ask you the opposite question, but it's almost too hard because it's like, whenever I think of bad design in Seattle, I don't come up with a single thing or place or design, but I come up with a whole family. I'm in a position to talk about your house. I don't know if this is like, no, <laughs> oh my not, God, no, talk about it. Not your house specifically, but your, you know, the townhouse and low rise mm-hmm. spec development specifically. And that to me is both the good and the bad. Cause it's like, there's a lot of really bad versions of this, what I call like knockoff modern oh, yeah. stuff. So there's a lot of bad examples of that, but there's also this simultaneous rising of awareness of modern design. Yeah. Yeah. We actually had Sandy on last time and we talked about the impact on the city of development as an idea and its execution. So how do we know something is good or bad? And that's where that stuff is a very interesting example. From a design perspective. Especially at the outset, there was PB Elemental, Mm -hmm. which actually was a couple of guys in my graduate school class. And they started the sort of movement of selling low-rise spec developers on a modern aesthetic. And the idea that 
you could have floor to ceiling glass and that you could do these row houses and townhouses and duplexes and even single family houses in a style that wasn't a pitched roof knockoff craftsman thing and that it would sell and it would sell for 10% more or who knows how much more, but it got hot. So it became a trend? It is definitely a trend. Yeah. And it's a trend that we've seen mature because it kind of boomed pre-boom and then it petered out, but it's back and it's in a mature phase. Right. And there's still some good examples of it, but there's a lot of it that's really bad. And I think it's probably a pretty good, um, I don't know what you call it, litmus test or like a test specimen to talk about taste. Yeah. And it's funny, the sliding scale portion of design that they're the same exact work of art or piece of architecture to one person might be, they might have nailed it to the other person might be a complete disaster. It is hard to talk about and architects are almost afraid to talk about it because I feel like a lot of us want people to really like modern design and we all get together <laughs> not not in an official way we don't have if you're not an architect we don't have secret meetings where we decide what about modern design is great we all want to encourage good design but every time we say that phrase we are automatically becoming tastemakers gatekeepers we are automatically kind of telling you what good and bad design is and that's a tricky tricky spot but i think what happens and that what we're coming up on in Seattle is, you know, you hear a lot of these negative opinions from people about, oh, you know, just another one of these hardy panel boxes and they're just going to look terrible in a few years. And that's not necessarily wrong. A lot of them are going to look terrible in less than a few years. But what we're having is a situation where you have to be able to separate what is good design from maybe what is I don't know what to call it, good intentions maybe, but the quality isn't there because right. I think we're getting a little mixed up about what really is good design. It has to be excellent quality. In my opinion, there is no such thing as good design that is poor quality. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just about the aesthetics, the entirety of the situation of everything that is there. It's not good design if it's going to rot or leak or fall apart in a few years or if there's something that just is slightly annoying about the layout or any of that stuff. Most of the general public, I think, thinks of as design as being only superficial and only aesthetic. But there is bad taste in architecture. We've all seen those like McMansion photos with like porticos on porticos. and. I mean, we think it's bad taste. Yeah, but... There are some people that they love that. I think having been in Seattle for 15 years and having seen that prior to this knockoff modern becoming the vernacular of sorts, there was a very similar type of development, but it was primarily pitched roofs with faux craftsman details. And they were doing the same thing. They were doing six packs and eight packs. You'd tear down two houses and you'd build six or eight. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the interesting points when it comes to taste as it relates to architecture, design, style, is that that ticky-tacky, poorly constructed, might fall apart. They were building them with faux craftsman details. Now they're building them with parapeted flat roofs, roof decks, floor-to-ceiling glass, and they're not really different from a quality standpoint, but they're dramatically different from a stylistic standpoint. And at some point, collectively, we decided that we preferred this thing, which in many ways is more honest, if we're going back to the tenets of modernism, you know, it's, it is a flat roof, it is boxy, it's hardy panel, it's going to fall apart in 15 years. But that knockoff thing that referenced modernism, that used modernism as its inspiration, was the thing we like, the thing that the city embraced. And it's become, I don't know, you see it everywhere. Another question you could ask is, is, because as I was researching it, 
there's a lot of psychology about, well, when enough people agree on a thing, it becomes true. With anything social, that's kind of like you can't argue about gravity. Everything that goes up comes down. But if nine out of 10 people in a room agree on a thing, that 10th person loses. <laughs> and the thing that those nine people agree on becomes real. And so if enough people think something is good, people will generally think that's in good taste. And that last person doesn't have taste, but it's all just based on social psychology. So what I wonder when you were describing how developers kind of got sold in this modern aesthetic, I wonder if it was the chicken or the egg. Did they just start building this stuff and enough people get used to it and like it, decide it was tasteful? Or was it the opposite? They reached out to the market and said, oh, this is what people really like and really want. Or did the bottom line work out better? If right. you don't have to buy trim and everything. Well, like everything, it's a combination of both because floor to ceiling glass is great. Natural light's good. Open floor plans are flexible. When it comes to residential development, the tenants of modern design are really good for spec development because they are impersonal. They are not someone's idea of what is domestic. And so much of spec development from however long ago relied on these sort of artificial versions or artificial constructions of domestic ideas that people who were not informed didn't care and just wanted to sell square footage would tack on to their building. And the ability to remove that stuff and still sell the same square footage with better light and a more flexible floor plan makes a certain amount of sense. It's, it's a question of appreciation. Like you can, so you can go to a class in music or architecture, art, whatever, and gain a greater appreciation for it, which I feel like everyone comes out of those experiences. One way you could put it is they have more taste than they had going in because they have a more refined palette for it, whatever it was. And I wonder if Seattleites have more or less of a refined palette for architecture. I feel like most cities don't have much of a palette for it. This city maybe talks about it more than a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think the debate about right now, the debate about urban planning is paramount. Everybody's talking about urban planning. But people do talk about the aesthetics that yes. why why are all the buildings in Seattle terrible? Like I just saw uh, an article in The Stranger the other day, like why are all the buildings terrible? And they're making a blanket assumption, but people are clearly noticing. Because I feel like the buildings you have mentioned, I am imagining the better done versions. There are versions of the modern building that definitely do not have floor to ceiling glass and do not have thoughtfully executed anything. And the fact that they are in the modern bracket doesn't help them in being good <laughs> in any way. Like anything that's a commodity, we're going we're gonna to have to get into this. <laughs> um, the issue of the commodification of things that were determined to be tasteful, that became a pastiche that their tastefulness was the thing that sold it at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And there's that sticky wicket of authenticity. But at a certain point, someone was doing something authentic that was in a modern language that was an apartment building or a townhouse or a row house or at this point, downtown towers. That thing has been at this point in the latter stages of the boom, co-opted, commodified, watered down, corners cut, and we now are seeing examples that are still in the modern language, but 
a disnified version of it. It's almost like those mid to late 70s, quote unquote, mid-century modern homes mm -hmm. that you see where it was like it was the end of the movement and they just slapped a couple of weird angles on a shitty house and we're like, look, it's mid-century modern. And those houses are still out there and they're indicative of a specific moment in time. Well, yeah, I mean, can you think of anything that that doesn't happen to? If there is a success in any movement, that's sort of the trajectory of all of these things. There will always be that way. In fact, if it didn't go that way, it's almost that it didn't become successful enough and it was adopted and then bastardized. I think that takes it away from like my personal world of like having worked in designing spec development in Seattle. Something that I found really interesting about the subject in general, and it relates to architecture and any creative pursuit, is that there is this desire, and this is one of the reasons I chose you as the host of this particular show. There's a desire to want others to enjoy what you enjoy as much as you enjoy it. If you passionately enjoy something, it's true about design, it's true about music. It's like, no, this thing is amazing. If I share it with enough people, everyone else will understand how amazing it is. That's a slippery slope though, because see, that's mm -hmm. the thing. It's like, say you're a designer that comes up with this perfect, brilliant, career-making design, and it's your baby, you've done something beautiful, movements have been created, kind of go down in history for having invented this thing. And then, like I was saying earlier, it doesn't end there. If you did that, then people are going to take it and destroy it and mimic it and copy it and make terrible fakes of all of it and all of that. And all of that is so depressing. If you're saying that it's about taste, taste is so tricky. Like this is a really tricky subject. I wouldn't be entirely surprised if this whole thing ends up with my cutting room floor yeah. because it's really quicksand. No, but that's the thing is that it's the foundation of everything we do. But if you want less. people to like what you do, the problem is, is that there's a lot of people who won't like the original, but they're tasteless interpretation in our opinion of what you did might be what makes them love your design. Loving the design is not a definition of I think maybe tasteful. that there is like I think one of the ways to start to untangle this, I think there's three types of people. There are the people who can see good taste and create it. They are rare amongst us. They're the special people. Then there are the people who can see things that have good taste. They can celebrate it. And then there are the people who can't see it and don't care. <laughs> right? Like I'm That's pretty so sure that covers everybody at that point. <laughs> and so harnessing the people who can see it and create it that's where the commodification of it begins. And I've been thinking about this prior to coming on this is like, I don't want to use the word of authenticity because we had a night school about this and it's a complicated, tricky subject when we talk about authenticity. And so I don't have a better word to use for it, but I believe that those people start from a place of personal authenticity. They're seeking in their creative process to make something that is true to themselves. And so it doesn't have to do with like, is it authentic to anything outside of themselves, but they're seeking some creative outlet that produces something that ends up being authentic to them. And when it comes to good things that become realized and then observed, and then because we live in a capitalist culture, it has to be commodified. And someone who can see that it is good can pick up on it and know it, spread it and perhaps profit from it. And there begins the slippery slope of when it becomes degraded, disnified, and a facsimile, and a, and a, and a, and a. Well, because of the capitalism itself, there are other people who may even be in some of these three categories that you define, 
but they are inherently capitalist enough to know that they can design this thing that is an annihilation of the original concept, but will make the most money because there is a massive amount of people who will prefer this other option. This is true, but you're so severe. Yeah, I've been told that. Um, <laughs> there's tastemakers now, right? Like this is a thing. There are people whose job is- Right, but who's the kingmakers of the tastemakers? What was it, History of the World Part One, Mel Brooks? Have you seen that? Obviously, it's a comedy, and they show like the first artist since this caveman drawing on a on a wall, and they show the first critic who like takes a leak on it. Oh, I have seen that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't count myself entirely among that contingent who can see it and do it. I definitely can see it. My primary hobby is the consumption of music. I have two kids. I don't get enough sleep. I don't actually get to do much. So I listen to music. I read about music. I go to shows when I can. And I think that music operates in a different track than architecture or design, but it has a lot of overlap. There's a lot of overlap. In a lot of ways, it's less commodified than mm -hmm. design and in architecture. Fact, it might be in an era of decommodification to a to a negative impact. Yeah, for the last uh -huh. ten years, it's become progressively harder to make money making and distributing music. Mm -hmm. Like the democratization of music has had this weird impact where the absence of the radio, the absence of MTV, the absence of all of these primary ways that we used to receive music that's been replaced by a choose your own adventure version of Pandora, Spotify, streaming, iTunes, whatever, has distilled the art in new ways. The totally manufactured boy bands of the past don't really exist anymore. Whether or not the commodification of music is a good or bad thing, I think itself is a question. I think that music is being consumed in a actually pure way now. The music industry has been, uh, they have been reduced, they have been removed in many ways just through technology. And we don't have the gatekeepers that used to be there. And so the things that resonate and the things that become hits in the new sense are just things that really do organically in a way connect with more people than ever before. And it's not because some radio DJ or some record label head or some person in a position of power decided to push a thing that they believed was good. It was just because enough people are connected to the internet and they decided that this thing moved them. Right. So, so it's like music is ahead of the time. So imagine if we could somehow get, I mean, because let's just say for the sake of our argument that we're going to limit design to architectural design. It's like music has had this opportunity now to get so much further ahead than architectural design, which I mean, I, of I course, there's a lot of things where that, that make that harder I because somebody has agree. to pay for the building. Because it seems like it basically eliminated the need to water down creativity to appeal to the masses. Now you can appeal to the masses by being unique. I keep thinking about, I don't know what's the randomest segue, I keep thinking about Jay Leno. Like Jay Leno's not objectively funny, but he makes a huge portion of the population hear a joke and go, oh yeah. It's just the most watered down version of comedy, but it does appeal to the masses because prior, you had so few choices that they needed somebody who could barely move a lot of people. And now you can really move a lot of people by creating unique things in a lot of them. This is something that when we talk about tastemakers, if you've ever read the author Chuck Klosterman, he talks about Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson was the last universal experience 
that we just you had no other choices and so everyone watched on cars so everyone had a discussion around the water cooler the next day because it was the only thing and now it's almost difficult to find common ground with the music that we consume or perhaps even media in general it's kind of funny to talk about what you're into because whether it's music fashion television movies it's so democratized these days that finding common ground is strangely difficult because you're able to just indulge your personal taste however you want to, wherever it takes you. I don't know whether that's good Maybe or bad. Maybe the reason why architecture is so far behind is because so many people are still required and so many resources are still required to make even one iteration. So many people have to commit. Very few people can afford to be singular. Things that are created have to be resellable, have to appeal to many different potential buyers. So music is ephemeral, so you can afford to do it. Yeah, well, you can't afford to fail with architecture and design. You can't just on a whim stay up late one night and get weird. I had a fever dream that everything was doors. And just, yeah, you can't just do that. <laughs> yeah. you, you can't just like get weird and record it and put it out there for the world to judge and not care if they don't like it. Right. There's too much downward pressure for it to be saleable. I mean, everyone talks about residential design being the, the crucible, being the laboratory for, for great design because that's the place where there's the most disposable income and the most resources for designers and architects to be creative and take chances and be risky. As soon as you get outside of the single family house, there's the pressures of the real estate market and there's the pressures of supply and demand and it has to sell and it has to meet financial goals. Well, the timeline is just too long. You can't really just go off on a tangent and explore something because it's going to take you 18 months to realize it. This is one of the things that I, I think about this a lot, really, is the intersection of digital and physical stuff, because it's it's like where I spend my life is that complicated place where these two come together. And it's so attractive to be on the digital side of things because you can iterate all the way through to a final product so fast and explore things and, and make terrible mistakes or do cool things. Because it's DIY. Know. No, because because you can get from start to finish so quickly. But you can control that process. And you can control that process. You don't need... I mean, not everyone can. I mean, I'm in a position where I can control the process because I have control over the design through the development stage. But that's not always the case in the digital world. Like you might have but some people that could design... But it's more available than it's ever been. Yes. To have control, personally. With limits, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you can't write about... the code yourself, then you have limits that aren't going to allow you to bring to fruition what you might design. Sure, but as technology applies to any creative process. Right. So if you apply it to architecture, for example, and especially if we bring in, say, virtual reality stuff, we actually have the ability now to go a lot further in the architectural realm and really almost feel like we can explore things Almost in yeah, real life can more do, than we used to. Yeah, we can do in our software right now. It's limited, but comparatively huge. Or we can change an entire construction system and see what it looks like instantaneously. We previously had no ability to do that. That's where I'm super old-fashioned. Yeah. Is like, I don't <laughs> care about any of that. Like, I care about the stuff that gets built. And that's where I think the difference is, is that you can noodle around with some really limited audio software and create a thing, put it on SoundCloud, and let the world judge, whereas you cannot goof around and get something built. Right. 
I mean, we're not yet. saying the same thing, I guess. But so if you can't goof around and get something built, that means you have to limit your experimentation to a certain degree because you're not going to build everything at full scale and test it. Unless There's, you have a patron. <laughs> right. Well, yes. <laughs> Blake and I go back to that. Uh, <laughs> <place>. <laughs> yeah. And those patron patrons are often tastemakers. For whatever it's worth, like that's that's the custom single family residential side of things is so, that some patrons believe that's their duty and responsibility. Well, so do you become a tastemaker because you're a patron? It's just if you have the money to be a patron, no. you whatever you put your money towards, you're creating what is in taste, right? I mean, so how do you define who's a tastemaker? Well, do you have the money to make it tasteful? There you go. It's terrible. I know. <laughs> that's no, but that's a that's actually a whole nother but patronage is actually its own crazy subject. We could do a part two on just patronage because there's a good side and an evil side. There are pros and cons. Yeah. Just like there's pros and cons to Instagram tastemakers. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? But they have their power is with the people, whereas a, a patron is, it is their own power. Yeah. They need all of those people to be following them in order to have a, a voice. If they only 10 people follow them, no voice. Right, but how a patron just followers? needs an audience of one, and that is their them and their bank account. And they get to choose the auteur. They get to uh, direct the orchestra if they want. Right. But where those followers come from on Instagram and all those things is a really tricky, complicated area. I don't even think we want to get into. I know. It's, it's really thorny. But that laboratory, it's not the only laboratory, but that laboratory of a patron and a creative given license has created plenty of dreck but has also been the impetus of so many icons and so much amazing design for good or for bad. That is where things that have become tasteful begin and take shape and are given the opportunity to grow and to explore and to fail or succeed. And that's hard. So how about how exposure plays into this? Because we talked about the boom earlier and whether or not the boom contributed to good design or bad design and so when you bring the idea of patrons into it, I mean, so designers, I feel like designers are the constant. There's always going to be designers out there. Designers are a constant. True designers can't help themselves. They will always be designing and doing things, whether or not what they're designing needs funding or what, you know, what, what media it is. If it's architecture, yeah, somebody has to build it. Somebody has to buy the materials. If it's music, well, these days there's you know, or even even in days of past, you had an instrument, you could play the music, you do it, you create it, you release it to the world, people like it or they don't like it. The designers and the production of that is a constant, whether or not the exposure of it reaches enough people, that's the thing that changes. So whether you're reaching it because there's a boom, your design is reaching a lot of people because there's just a lot of money being thrown around to produce these things and it's not always good, or whether your design is being produced because you have a patron and it's only one time, but it's this one brilliant time that was well-funded. Exposure, I think, has a big role in all of this. Yes. I think that there are there are people who we could call patrons who have the resources, who are willing to take chances, and there are those that are willing to make their bet on good design. And in the microcosm of Seattle, there are good designers and there are not as good designers. If a person who's willing to put their bet on good design and invest in it and reduce their margins by allowing a designer to have more time and more resources to produce something that we would call air quotes better, that's risky. That's fraught with peril because 
you might link up with an individual or an organization that can produce good design that is subjectively or even objectively a cut above, differentiated and unique and special. And then another one can see that success and say, I'm going to do that and look for a different designer that isn't up to the task. And therein lies the beginning of the, the degradation. We all think that we're tops and that we're the best and we're all trying and striving for it. But if someone sees something beautiful and special and they want to reproduce it because they know that they can profit from it, there's an authentic appeal to a new designer to say, hey, I want to do this thing too. And then there is a less authentic appeal to a designer to say, I want to do this thing because I want to profit from it. And usually the genesis is from a more pure perspective of like, I want to do something unique and special and different. And I may not profit as much, but I think that I will leave something physical here that will be better. And that matters to me. Can I ask you something about, because one of the patrons that you didn't mention is, I suppose, civic governments, the civic patron, right? And and I guess because I am asking you because you... Where was it? Amsterdam that you studied when you were? Well, I lived in the Netherlands. In the I ne- lived in The Hague for about a year and a half. I worked in the I worked in Amsterdam for about four months at the bottom of the All right. global well, so economic my, crisis. But my question then is because uh, I haven't I haven't had the opportunity to go there. But my understanding is that there is much more a much higher level of public education just through school from childhood on about the value of design and why design should be a part of society and civic discourse and all those things. And and so I'm wondering what you think about the idea of patronage of a government or a new project or if um, the public input that is required for certain projects and whether or not a public education on design and the quality of it and the reasons why design is inherently good. The Netherlands is a unique example because it's like the entire country is dense, more dense from an urban perspective. There's just less land. There's way more people per acre than anywhere else. When that many people live on that small amount of land, the debate about urban planning, architecture, and how we live is more primary. Being forced to be aware of it because it's how you live creates that awareness, I think, probably at the beginning, just at the most fundamental level. But then they're further on the spectrum of socialism (laughs) and there's way more and i'm not advocating for socialism as much as i'm saying that there's a lot of public private partnerships when it comes to housing and when things are as dense as they are in the netherlands they don't have enough to support the thirst there's a need for housing all the time always and so they've been operating from that perspective for so long there's a lot of public private partnerships and because people are aware of good design good urban planning the products of those public private partnerships are good they're better they're examples for the rest of the world so you need constraints to i mean this isn't unfamiliar to any of us really but constraints lead to good design and, and bad music cooperation has this awkward impact on design where it's like often when there's a lot of cooperation for whatever reason whether it's economic or whether it's civic or whatever like it can sometimes infrequently result in 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 better products but most of the time cooperation ends up in poor quality because there's more than one author And I think that when you talk about creative pursuits generally and design also, a single author is often the most impactful 
and usually best thing. But not necessarily a single author in a vacuum. Sure. Yeah, no. No, I mean, an author never exists in a vacuum. Exactly. Any In any condition. Like, there's always an audience, right? So Yeah, I mean, good design, you have to be aware of, of your contexts mm-hmm. and the environment and the surrounding, you know, both yeah. literally I mean, like, and conceptually. Painting and, and sculpture and music does not require a context, really. I mean, they do sometimes, but they require the least amount of a context. As oh, opposed. we could have a whole nother podcast. <laughs> oh, art, yeah. It's funny. I thought about segueing into art, but then I'm just like, that's a whole nother It's so thorny. It's like so difficult. And it's music... taste in its purest, most confusing sense. Or it's yeah. not taste at all. It's, it's. Well, t- taste is, is manipulated like a liquid market, essentially. Well, I mean, taste is and like it's the all worst. influencers and the price and the economics is all based on the influences. It's pure, actually, in a messed up way. I don't know. T- taste is the. the I... We keep trying to not talk about it, even though the whole point of this podcast is that we're going to talk about it because it's so tricky. That's right. Towards the end, we're we're almost out of time. But usually I would ask somebody like what um, their dream project would be or something like that. But I actually want to ask you to exercise your taste in a few categories. Name for me first a couple of really good TV shows. Good TV shows start and end with The Wire. It's the best. And then the first season of True Detective. Yes. Is awesome. And we have really, really high hopes for the third season because the second one was a huge letdown. Mm -hmm. I was a really big fan of the show Deutschland 83, which is a spy drama about East and West Germany in the 80s. And there's a new season coming out in October. It's called Deutschland 86. So it's three years later, you know, just a couple of years shy of the wall coming down. It's really good. It looks like it's going to be a little bit more Hollywood, which may not be bad. Love, you know, Northern European crime procedurals. <laughs> it doesn't everybody. <laughs> Wallander is really good. Um, the old and the new. Uh, Kenneth Branagh is great. Um, the Brone, Debron, I think. I'm not sure how to say it in um, Danish. Is a really, really good. If you like Scandinavian crime procedurals, which I do, and my wife and I, we have a shared love for these things. Um, it's really good. It's about somewhere your Netflix account brought up all these weird flags. <laughs> like we're very concerned about customer eight seven one two three. Well, the problem is they're not all available on Netflix because you have to check, get check his travel schedules and available murders. You have to get in Northern Europe. You have to get some of them from Netflix, some of them from Amazon Prime. You know, it's hard. Um, so. <laughs> so, struggle. but Debron is is really really good. We all collectively have to endure the pain of The Handmaid's Tale. If I can, can make a political <laughs> statement, yeah. like we all have to subject ourselves to this misery because we need to take it to heart. So, what about music? Two great artists doing uh, putting out incredible music right now. This is this is a more complicated question. And as soon as he answers, they won't be great anymore. I kind yeah exactly. It, once once you've heard about them, they suck. <laughs> Anyways. Um, <laughs> Music. We didn't talk about that, actually, the uh, private ownership we have over things we love. That you could do an entire podcast about what's totally. cool. Totally. We haven't even talked about what's cool. Oh, my God. That Which should I'm be surprised. the part two should be this. This episode is titled. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. Like being cool is a <laughs> is a variant or like side topic of taste. We're totally doing that. That episode. has a lot of very specific totally doing that. characteristics that are uh, ephemeral and difficult to pin down, but also really, really important. I think when you ask me about what I like in music, it's less about who I'm into and I'll give you some people or whatever, but it's like. You're going to destroy them by mentioning them? No. 
things that make good music and things that make good art generally are hunger. And once you have success and resources, there is a degree of authenticity that's lost. And that's really hard. And that generally artists that are making music, they don't have any exposure. The source material that they're coming from, it comes from a real personal place, produces better music. And so it is very rare that there's an artist that can become famous and continue to make good and interesting art because of this issue of commodification. That once you have economic security, once you have stability, once you have it as a job instead of a creative pursuit, once it's not just a, a thing that you have to do because you have this thing you have to let out, it's different for every artist, but there's this point at which it doesn't have the same potency. And so I find myself drawn to singles and EPs and things that have been recently released because I feel like they come from a very special, unique place that is illustrative of that artist's mindset at that time. It's a thing that's special and it's of them and it's unadulterated and it doesn't have the trappings that come with once you become picked up, once you become famous, once you become commodified, once you become something that has to be sold, something that has to be maintained, something that other people depend on for it to be good. That's where it gets really tricky with music. People will stumble on something that's totally mind-blowing and then it'll blow up because it can because of technology and because there's so many ways for you to touch so many people these days that it can be an organic groundswell. And then when someone picks that up and decides that they want to profit from it, another profit's evil. But I'm just saying that then there's pressure and then there's the need to reproduce it. And there's no longer this just this pure expression of something that's unique and special and comes from the heart. I listen to a lot of random brand new stuff. And what matters is not if you listen to this person or that person or if you listen to this genre or that genre. It's that you care enough to be digging. Is that you actually go out of your way to try and figure out what you care about. There are people who say, I listen to whatever's on. And the people who say, I listen to whatever's on, fall into two categories. <laughs> and those people who just don't care, they'll listen to whatever's on. And there are people who love and care about music and can find good and great work in every genre. That's what's true, is that there are people producing good work. Doesn't matter. There's country and Western, there's R&B, there's genres we don't even understand yet, that there's people just making good and interesting and cool stuff and you can go find them if you want. Thank you so much for coming on the show with us. You're more than welcome. And thank you very much for listening. Design Goggles is now on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us on Instagram at Design Goggles Podcast, or you can find us on Facebook as Design Goggles Podcast as well. Our next night school event will also be right around the corner, so keep a lookout on our social media for that. It will be held here at Board & Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. Check out our blog on boardandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks.